0: Well, thanks so much, Lori. A great introduction, bringing us up to where we are in our First Samuel series. And so I'm going to go right into the reading of our passage in First Samuel chapter 8, all 22 verses, I'm going to read the story and then walk through it part by part and talk about how God speaks to us in this powerful passage of scripture. So if you have a Bible, open up to First Samuel chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. So they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves." When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard... All that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. This is the word of the Lord. And I've got a question for us to think about before we walk through this passage. And the question is, what is it that you need in order to be full? What is it that you need in order to be satisfied, in order to be content, in order to be fulfilled? What is it that you need in order to be full? In this passage, what we encounter is what should be a great celebratory retirement ceremony for Samuel, the prophet and priest of Israel. He's retiring from public life. He wants to hand the, hand the reins off to his sons. Um, and, and really, this should be a time of celebration because Samuel has been at the helm when Israel got turned around. He inherited a nation that had corrupt priest he inherited a nation that was largely godless and in fact the last time we saw this the biggest thought that the people had of God before Samuel took the reins of this is that they were going out to battle and they said why don't we bring the ark of the covenant which is sort of the symbol of God's presence and that'll be our rabbit's foot that'll be our lucky charm that'll give us victory in battle the last interaction that they had about God was that they were using God for their own purposes and then Samuel Took over and Israel repented. And Israel had a time of revival, and the Word of God was present through Samuel, and people were responding to God. It was a huge turnaround. I mean, Samuel taking over Israel in this time, it's a little bit like he was a coach that came to a high school basketball program that was in absolute shambles. You know, he walks into the gym as Coach Samuel, and he sees that the gym is just ragged there's iron seats sitting over there where people are going to try to sit uncomfortably and watch this game there's no banners up on the wall the uniforms were all bought from thrift stores uh, The kids who are on the team are all fighting with each other they're not disciplined they're not good players nobody wants to be a part of the team there's no boosters there's no money but he goes to work And he starts finding inroads with recruiting kids to come and join the team. And then after a little while, he starts to get sponsors to give them good uniforms. And he gets some people to volunteer and come and fix up the gym. And then he just works and works and works. And he works away at bringing discipline and bringing pride back to the program. And by the time he's done, by the time the retirement ceremony is coming around for Coach Samuel, there are banners hanging from those rafters, championship banners, because he has turned this around. The players are now the most disciplined players. People are moving from out of state to be in the community so that their kids can play for this team. They're the talk of the town. And all while coach Samuel was at the helm. And so now it's time for him to walk away. Now it's time for him to stop coaching and he's got a groomed assistant coach who he's gonna let take it from here. But at the retirement ceremony, as he's announcing this transition, the boosters come up and interrupt it. They're not keen on the plan that he has for the transition. And what happens in this passage is that Samuel's old, he's no longer gonna be the leader of Israel, the judge of Israel and he wants to hand it over to his sons, but at his great retirement ceremony that should have been a time of celebration, the elders of Israel come to Samuel, and they say, you're old, and your sons don't follow your ways. And by the way, they were right. We read earlier in 1 Samuel about Eli, who was the the high priest and the leader of Israel before Samuel came around, and Eli's sons were corrupt priests, and it turns out that Samuel's sons were corrupt also they were taking bribes and they were perverting justice Um, they had full venmo accounts because any time there was an opportunity to line their pockets they were willing to turn a blind eye to oppression and so the elders come to Samuel and they say no 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 we don't like your transition plan we don't want your sons taking over and you're too old to keep doing it And so they come and they don't just say, we don't like your assistant coach, get a different assistant coach. They say, we are gonna bring in a new coach, a new staff, a new program, an utterly new philosophy. They don't say to Samuel, we don't like your sons, get us different judges. They say, we don't like your sons, get us a king. We want a king. And Israel had never had a king. And specifically what they say is they say, we want a king so that we're like the other nations around us. And this is a problem for a few reasons. The biggest reason that this is a problem is because Israel wasn't meant to be just like all the nations around them. When God formed them into a nation, he said, you are a holy nation. And the idea of holiness is that you're different, that you're set apart, that you stand out, not that you blend in. Israel wasn't meant to be like everyone else. In fact, they were specifically meant to be different from everyone else. So it's a problem that the people are saying, we want a king just like everyone else. And it's worth pausing and just recognizing for ourselves, for any of us who have been through junior high and or high school, um, we know the pull to be like everyone else is a pretty strong pull. That, that, that's a pretty strong temptation. There's a lot of power behind that, that you want to make sure you're listening to the same music that the other people are listening to, that you're dressing in the same way that other people are dressing, that you're talking in the same way that other people are talking. You're seeing the movies that other people are moving and you're doing the activities that other people are doing. Even as adults, there's a lot of power behind the pull to fit in and be like others. That said, it seems like there's got to be something more because the pull of being like everyone else is not absolute. There are times that we wouldn't sign on for that. Uh, Let's say there's a kid who has really rich parents. And so his dinners usually consist of pizza, burgers, steaks, lasagna, you know, all these good things. Um, But he goes to a really poor school And so most of his friends, they have a nice meal once a week and the other six days they have rice and beans. Can you imagine that kid coming to his parents and saying, mom, dad, enough of the burgers, enough of the pizza, enough of the steaks, enough of the lasagna, enough of all this stuff. I want to be like everybody else. So let's have rice and beans six days a week. Probably not. Not. The desire to be like everyone else is not absolute. So there at least should be a sense in which we look at this request from the elders and say that there's probably something else at work here. And I'm going to tell you right now, there is something else at work here. There is a different reason that they're not saying outright that we're going to run across later. But part of it is that they look at the nations around them and they say, we don't want Samuel anymore. He's too old. We don't want his sons. They're corrupt. We want a king because that's what the other nations around us do. Now, Samuel prays. He's troubled about this. And part of it seems to be that he's taken it personally. Maybe he didn't know about the corruption of his sons. He he probably did, but he still, he takes this as a personal slight, but he prays to God about it. And here's the interesting thing. What God in essence says to him is, they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me, God, as their king. But then he goes ahead and says, now give him a king. Which brings up a question, and by the way, if you're doing what we've recommended and and you're walking through the life group lessons um, in preparation of meeting as life groups or or just for personal Bible study, which I really recommend that you do. It's a really great way to take what we're learning together in these sermons and, and to take it to the next level and dig in on your own. But one of the questions that we ask in the life group lesson is if God thought it was bad that they were asking for a king, why did he give them a king? And it's not an easy question to answer, but, but I'll, I'll give an idea that I think may be at work here. Um, it may be a little bit like a parent. And sometimes as a parent, your kid asks you for things that you know are not good for them. And a lot of times you say no. So let's say you're having really spicy food and you got a four-year-old that's saying, give me some of that. I really want that. Please let me try some of that. And they keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. And he keeps saying, no, this is not gonna go well if you have it. But eventually you say, you know what? Take some. And they take some. And their face gets red and they start to get sweaty and they learn a lesson from it. There seems to be some sense in which God is saying, I'm going to give them a king, not because it's good for them to have a king, but so that they can see that having a king isn't going to do for them what they think it's going to do for them. God says to Samuel, go ahead and give them a king, but then he says, but warn them, Samuel, tell them the cost of having a king because there's a lot of freedoms that they're going to lose, and Samuel goes back to the people, and man, he really goes for it. He really lays it on thick about all of the costs of having a king. He says, you want a king? Get ready for your sons to be drafted into the army and get ready for the king to treat them like they're just dispensable. They're all gonna protect him and he's gonna have battalions around them but your sons are going to be dispensable soldiers. And if you want a king, get ready for your daughters to be drafted into kingdom service, being perfumers and cooks and bakers. Get ready for the king to tax you on your lands, to take some of your flocks and to take some of your crops. Get ready for the cost of having a king because if he's anything like the kings of these other nations, he's going to be about getting for himself all that he can, and you are going to lose out on many of your freedoms in the process. And just as a quick aside, some of you right now that are more libertarian, kind of in your politics, this is like red meat for you right now. You're just like, this is the best passage ever. I I love this because what this passage is saying is that big government is bad. Big government is bad and we should have small government because having big government look after us is is just too costly. Um, And here's what I want to say. If your opinion is that small government is better than big government, that's fine. Have that opinion. Don't do violence to this passage by trying to make it say that. This passage is not saying, don't let anybody rule you, you rule yourself. What this passage is about is that the Israelites are making a mistake of saying, we want a king to rule over us when God is saying, I was supposed to be your king. You had judges, but I was your king. The problem was not that they wanted big government instead of themselves. The problem is that they wanted a king instead of God being their king. Samuel not only lays this on, but at the end of the time he says, and by the way, um, after all this happens and after the kings do all of these things that I'm predicting that they're gonna do, you're gonna regret that you have a king. You're gonna regret this and you're gonna call out to God and you're gonna say, we made a mistake. We're so sorry. Can we go back to the way that things are? And God's gonna say, no, you have to live with the consequences of your decision. Samuel pours it on thick And then the people respond and say, nope, we want a king. They've heard the cost. They've heard what they're going to lose. And they still said, give us a king. Now, uh, I want you to listen though specifically to what they say when they re-request the king. They say, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. We already knew that that was part of the motivation. But then they say, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now there is the key right there. There is the motive right there. It wasn't just that they were saying, we want to fit in with all the other nations, is that they looked at the other nations and they said, they have kings to go fight their battles for them. We want one of those. We want a king to lead us and to fight our battles for us and you might be hearing that and thinking why, why is that such a big deal why is that such a big problem the reason that's such a big problem is because if one thing was clear for the nation of Israel from the time they became a nation it is that God fought their battles for them that God led them out to battle You can go all the way back to the time of Moses where they're standing before the Red Sea before it was parted. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. They've got Egyptians behind them. And in Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, here's what Moses says. He says, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. The Lord will fight for you. And then years later, Moses was leading them on the beginning of the conquest as they're going into the promised land and they're facing daunting enemies and daunting armies as they're going to go in. And in Deuteronomy chapter 3 verses 21 and 22, here's what Moses says. He says, at the time I commanded Joshua, you have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you are going. Do not be afraid. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. And Joshua experienced that because at the end of his life in Joshua 23.3, looking back on them coming into the promised land, he says to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you again and again and again with the people of Israel. God will fight your battles for you. And you know what happened one chapter before the story that we're going through? Um, Samuel takes over as the key leader in Israel and the Philistine oppressors are still around and the people are afraid and the people come to Samuel and he leads them in this grand repentance where they begin to seek the Lord and they're confessing their sins and they're offering sacrifices and as they do this, the Philistines see that they're gathered and the Philistines come against them to attack. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse eight, we read this. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he may rescue us from the hands of the Philistines. They say, we need God to fight for us. And Samuel offers sacrifices and he cries out to God. And then it says that God thundered deeply and Thor is a cheap imitation. God thunders and he throws the Philistines into such a panic that the Israelites are able to raid them and win a victory. Just in the previous chapter, they experienced the idea that God fights their battles for them. And now they're coming to Samuel and saying, you know what we want is we want a king to fight our battles for us. Um, God, you've done a good job. I mean, that Red Sea thing was, was really nice. Bringing us into the promised land, that, that, that was good. Um, that, that whole time with the Philistines, that was nice also. You have done a good job, God, leading us into battle. But now we think we can replace you with a king. We think that military victory and you know, kind of national security, those things are within our reach. We don't necessarily need you to lead us and to provide those things for us anymore. Samuel hears this request, tells everybody to go home and in the following chapters we'll see the unfolding of Israel getting exactly what they asked for, getting their first king. Now, we read a story like this that was written a long time ago about events 3,000 years ago. And we we ask the question, well, well, what does this mean for us? What what does this mean for us when we see this request for a king and the idea that the Israelites wanted to basically replace God as the one who leads them into battle with a king who leads them into battle? What what does this mean for us? Does this mean that we can't have leaders? Does this mean that we can't vote for presidents? Does does this mean that we can't have people that we put in different positions representationally? What, What does this mean for us today? And the answer is, no, that it, it doesn't mean that you can't have leaders. It doesn't mean that you can't have teachers. It doesn't mean that you can't have presidents and governors, you, you, you can have all those things. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you can't have a lot of other people who you look for to play good functions in your life. Um, you can have presidents and governors and kings. You can have trainers and coaches and mentors. Uh, you can have a wife or a husband or a child. You can have friends. You you can have all of those things, but you can only have one deliverer. You can only have one savior. And that savior is God. So when the Israelites come to Samuel and they say, you know what we really need? We really need somebody to lead us out into battle. The reason this is such a problem is because that was God's job. And they're saying, we want somebody else to do that. And when we think of ourselves today, I think a big part of our problem is that there is truly only one savior. There is truly only one deliverer. And yet we look around and we see saviors and deliverers everywhere. As you think about the idea that we see saviors everywhere or potential saviors everywhere, I wanna come back to the question that I asked at the beginning. What is it that you need in order to be full? And sometimes when we think about that, we we even come to God and, and we request that he give us things that will make us full. God, if I could just get out of this frustrating job that I'm in and get into this dream job, God, I would be full. God, if you just allow me to be accepted into the college that I'm going for, God, I would be full. God, if I could just start dating that girl, dating that guy, if I could just have a spouse, if I could just be married, if we could just have children, God, I would be full. And maybe even during this time, I know there's probably a lot of us that are thinking, God, if you just get us out of this shutdown, I will be full if I can just go out, if I can see my friends regularly again, if I can do the normal things like going to watch a sporting event or going to a concert or just going to the store without wearing a mask. God, if you gave me that, I would be full. And here's the deal. There's nothing wrong with marriage. There's nothing wrong with jobs. Nothing wrong with college. Nothing wrong with asking God for certain possessions. There's nothing wrong with wanting the shutdown to be done so that we can go back to doing things that we love. None of that is wrong. But there is something wrong about asking God to give us something that we believe is going to make us full. It's because we're asking God to give us something to do what only he can do. It's a little bit like if there, there was a husband and a wife, and, and the wife knew that the husband loved her, and so one night she said, y- you know what would really make me feel great? You know what would really make me feel loved? Um, would you be willing to run to the store and just get us some ice cream that we can sit and eat together? That would mean so much to me. Would you be willing to do that? And he says, oh, of course I'm willing to do that. And runs out to the store and gets the ice cream. Um, and then the next night they're talking, and she says, y- you know what would really make me feel loved. Um, I I, I was online. I was on Amazon earlier and I ran across some earrings that really, I really love them. And it's it's not quite in the budget. And, and, and I know it's not something that I normally ask for, but do you think that there's any way that I could get those? And he says, of, of course, of course, we'll make that work. And then the next night she comes to him and she says, you know know what would mean so much to me tonight? Can we just take a walk and hold hands and talk and and reconnect? Would would we be able to do that? That would mean so much to me. And he says, well, of course I'll do that with you. Um, And then the fourth night she comes to him and she says, you know what would mean a lot to me? Um, If you would go out and you would get me a man. And if you would bring back that man, um, and then I could start to emotionally co- connect with him. Um, we, we could start to share our lives deeply. We could begin to share our finances. He, he and I could raise children together and, and join in life and really be partners in life. Would you be willing to, to go and do that for me? Um, and the husband's gonna say, well, what? Uh, no, I'm not willing to do that. Uh, you're asking me to go get my replacement. I, I'm your husband, I'm not gonna go get your, my replacement. How many times are we asking God, would you please replace yourself? God, I know that you say that Jesus is the bread of life. I know that you say that you alone satisfy our souls, but God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give me something that I'm pretty sure will satisfy my soul so that you'll be out of a job. How many times in our requests are we really asking God to replace himself? And you know, when we ask God to do this, here's the deal. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no. Um, Sometimes God says no when we ask him to replace himself and when we ask him for these things um, because God knows that we're stupid and we are stupid. We don't know. Sometimes we're just ignorant and we're just foolish. And so God says no because we're dumb or he says no because he knows that getting that thing that we want, it's almost like we want it too badly and it's not gonna be good for us. Um, for example, we, we usually once a week, we do burgers and fries for our family and everybody loves it. The kids just love it. I love it. Everybody loves it. Um, if we were having a getting ready for an evening meal and and the kids came to me and said, could we do burgers and fries tonight? That'd be really cool. Um, the answer would probably be sure. We'll do burgers and fries tonight. But if my kids came to me and they said, if I don't get a burger in the next half an hour, I am going to flip out. I can guarantee you, my answer would be, you are not sniffing a burger tonight because it is too important to you. This is way out of proportion. I'm not gonna give it to you because it's not a good gift now, it's an obsession. And sometimes God says no because we're stupid and we ask for stupid things and we don't recognize that they're not gonna be good for us. But the powerful thing and what we see in this passage also is that sometimes we ask God to give us something that's meant to replace him. And sometimes God says, yes. Sometimes you ask God for a king. God says, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and give you a king. Sometimes we ask God to let us into the dream college that we're obsessed with, just so that we can end up going to that dream college and recognizing that there's parts of it that are a total nightmare to us. Sometimes we beg God and we're obsessed with marriage and we're obsessed with finding somebody and then God grants that request and we get married. And I'm just going to tell you, I love marriage and I love my wife. But if you get married, you will find very quickly that there is no spouse on the planet who is a good savior. And if you set yourself up for the idea that marriage is going to be what makes you full, you'll be sorely disappointed. God sometimes allows us to get the things that we want to replace him with So that we can see that they're just cheap imitations. So that we can get reminded of the reality that there is only one bread of life. There is only one God who can fill us. There may be governors, there may be presidents, there may be friends, there may be spouses, there may be possessions. There is one Savior. And nobody can do the job that that one savior does. In fact, one of the powerful things that this passage reminds us of is that Israel did get a king. Israel did get many kings. Some were good, some were okay, some were terrible. But even the good ones weren't deliverers. Even the good ones were lousy saviors. But when David, the greatest king of Israel, was on the throne, God said to him, I'm one day going to bring one of your descendants and he's going to rule forever. His kingdom will never end. He will be the true savior of not only Israel, but the world. And about a thousand years later, Jesus showed up on the scene. Jesus, who said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine, and you're the branches. Jesus, who showed up to sacrifice his life to bring us forgiveness so that we could be part of the family of God and be full. There's only one Savior And so I I want to challenge you in three ways or or give you three invitations for how we respond to this. And the first is this. the, The first is maybe you are still looking to be full by things other than God. Maybe you're still looking for some elusive savior out there and you have never placed your faith in Jesus. And I want to invite you, whether you're four years old or 40 years old or 100 years old, you today can put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can end up coming to the one and only Savior who can make you full, the eternal Son of God who came to the earth, identified with our weaknesses, died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and was raised from the dead to new life so that we could have hope after death. I wanna invite you to place your faith in the one true savior and it doesn't involve some complicated religious ceremony or ritual it involves you coming humbly to God in prayer and saying God I need a savior my own morality is not going to cut it my own goodness my own brain my own intellect none of these things are truly gonna save me in the end. We're all mortal. We all need a savior. We all need forgiveness. There's only one savior and it's Jesus Christ. I wanna invite you to place your faith in that one savior. And I've also got a couple invitations for, for those of us that already have placed our faith in our savior. And that's that, man, you might look around right now and realize that there have been some things that you've been looking to replace God with. There are some things that have become too important to you. There are some things that have gone from being good gifts of God into being competing saviors. Um, And it may be a hobby. It may be a, a possession. It may be even an aspiration or a dream or something that you're driven for. And I want to invite you, there may need to be some repentance over this that you need to look and say, you know what? I've been looking to be saved. I've been looking to be made full by stuff that was never meant to to make me full. And I wanna say even beyond this, I, I know we forget about this because of all of the chaos in our country right now. This is actually an election year. So some of you right now are probably tempted to think, I will be full if the right person ends up in the White House for the next four years. And not only that, but you have been trampling and devaluing people who disagree with you on who should be in the White House the next four years. Maybe some of the repentance that you need to do has not just to do with what you've been thinking internally, but the fact that you've been willing to trample on other people in order to get what you think will make you full. We need to repent. And even as I say that, there's a temptation with this passage and and with this idea to think about it and and only focus on the negative, to only focus on the idea of like, well, I've just got to stop looking to other stuff. Yeah, you do need to stop looking to other potential saviors, to the one true savior. But positively, the invitation here is that we get to feast on Jesus Christ. We get to come to him and experience all the benefits of the fact that he has saved us. I wanna invite you, man, pour your burdens out to the Lord. He is the one savior. You get to come to him with all of your problems, with all of your burdens, with all the things that overwhelm you. You get to come to him when you're in deep grief. You get to come to him when you're in the heat of temptation. You get to come to him when you're despairing over what's gonna happen next. You get to put all of your burdens on him and he is the only savior. He is the only one strong enough to lead you with peace through all of that. And I just want to say, make time to do this. Not not just once a year or even once a month. Man, make time to to take a walk or to go into your room and get on your knees, to, to get on your diary or your computer, whatever it takes. Pour out your heart to the one true Savior. He can and will deliver you from those burdens and he can and will lead you with peace in a very uncertain time. Let me go ahead and close our time in prayer. Father God, thank you so much that you have given us the one true savior in Jesus, the one true king who we still anticipate as coming back one day. Father, forgive us for not only at different times trying to replace you, but even asking you to give us your replacements. Father, we repent And Father, I pray that you give us the joy and the fullness of experiencing what it is like to walk with and have our burdens carried by the one and only Savior. May we be a people who look to one and only one Savior, one and only one deliverer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. The rest of this week, we can't wait till the next time that we get to be together.